We're looking this morning at Luke chapter 9, verse 37 to 45, the healing of a boy with an evil spirit. We're entitling our message this morning, The Glory and the Grime. And our world is a very strange mixture, isn't it, of the glory and the grime. There's so much to marvel at in our world in so many different ways, so much beauty, and there's also so much sadness and darkness. Uh, on Thursday, we were on a, at a family funeral uh, in the midst of glorious scenery along the shores of Loch Alsh. Uh, with a crowd of over 300, we were gathered remembering uh, a man of great meekness, of sheer goodness, a man who had given his life to his uh, community, to the service of his saviour, to his family, and uh, we left a great deal of warmth, a lot of family love. Uh, we were looking out on the, the sun-dappled waters of the loch, the blue sky, the majestic mountains, and yet it couldn't hide the fact that we were gathered at a time which was ultimately about the transience of life, uh, which carried with it the reality of loneliness and sorrow. And the verses that we're looking at this morning have that same kind of poignancy about them. Uh, the opening words of the section in verse 37 link what we're looking at with the scene of the transfiguration on the mountain. The next day when they came down from the mountain. It was on the mountain that Jesus had, had this wonderful experience which had been shared with three of the disciples. It had been for them a foretaste of heaven. The veil was pulled aside for a moment. They saw Jesus shining in a glorious way. There was a glory that was unveiled, unhindered by his humanity. It belonged to another world and it left them awestruck. They had heard Jesus acknowledged by his heavenly Father. They had seen him honoured by the, the great men of the Old Testament. Uh, it was as though they had been privileged to have been uh, invited into royalty for a while and shared uh, the intimate secrets of royalty for a time. And their natural instinct had been to put up memorials which would have extended the experience and to which they could have gone back in the future to recall what they had there on the mountain top. But it wasn't to be. Because they had to leave the mountain top and they had to go back down to the grime of a world that was groaning under sin and was broken by sin. Where many people live desperate lives, sometimes tottering on the very edge of things. Of course, there's a, a real parallel in the Christian life, and we sometimes even speak about being on the mountaintop. Uh, we use the term to speak of the kind of ways in which we can feel especially close to God at times. We're on the mountaintop. Um, I've been often to the Keswick Convention in the Lake District, and it can be like being on the mountaintop for a week because you have this rich Bible teaching. 
this wonderful fellowship, the singing of 5,000 plus people in the tent, not to mention the beautiful scenery all around. And you want the week to go on and on. But of course it can't. And you have to go back and you go back to the familiar surroundings and the familiar challenges of life in a fallen world. And often when we have been on the mountaintop, uh, that's often when Satan does come in uh, very quickly and sometimes we can stumble. It's a strange thing. Uh, You wouldn't think it would be like this. You would think that it would be when we were desperately tired or when we were feeling down that Satan would come and of course he comes at these times also but also he comes to us when we perhaps feel over secure and we come from being on the mountaintop and Satan is in like a flood. So there's a lesson for us about taking care lest we stumble spiritually. It's a lesson uh, for us as it was for the crowd of the importance of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not giving in to the pressure of people who do not believe. But it's also a story, I think, which speaks to, to folks who aren't yet Christians because it speaks to us of the reality of the world as we know it. The fact that uh, we have here portrayed for us the reality of a world where there is this mixture of beauty and squalor and glory and grime. And in the midst of this world, we have these little glimpses which make us long for something so much better. Where we do have a little foretaste of glory of heaven. And we're reminded that what we have here is not the end of the story. Luke's account is a very concise account if you compare it especially to Mark's gospel. Mark has a much more expanded account. Uh, Luke doesn't, for example, record the conversation, uh, the full conversation between Jesus and the the Father. Uh, It's an interesting conversation. Uh, We have the the wonderful words of the Father uh, in Mark's gospel. Uh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief, which has been a help to many as a person. Uh, nor do we have the discussion with the disciples afterwards in such length. Uh, Luke has structured his account so that right in the middle we have Jesus' warning about uh, unbelief, Jesus' rebuke uh, of the perverse and unbelieving generation. And he makes this central so that uh, this is for us the important message to take on board. So the flow of the story is from the the grime of a world spoiled by sin to the glory of Jesus revealed in the restoration of this little family unit and the call, therefore, to faith in him. Grime and glory and faith. When Jesus came down the mountain and into the valley, uh, it was a a geographical journey. He came down a certain number of meters and so on, but it was a spiritual journey also. He was leaving behind the light, the fellowship, the love, the affirmation of his Father, the faith, the glory of the mountaintop for a world in which there was suffering. And it's represented here by a man who comes to Jesus with his only son, 
Uh, and this boy's life has been ruined by demonic attack. The symptoms sound like leprosy, the, you know, the convulsions, the foaming at the mouth, but that would be too simplistic to, to label it simply as leprosy. Jesus specifically says that it is uh, the evil spirit who's causing this. We look at the, the goings-on in the world around us. If you take your smartphone and look at the news section, just review that, you see just on any day the brokenness that there is in the world. When I was preparing this and I looked at my phone, uh, there were all kinds of things. There, there was this awful uh, report of the 1,400 children abused in Rotherham. Sickening crime, sickening uh, account uh, a new and a deadly uh, disease, Ebola virus, spreading in West Africa. The Ukraine crisis, they say, slipping out of control. Uh, lesser scale, reports of people trying to sell their right to vote in the referendum on eBay, something that's not only uh, illegal but shameful. The UK terror threat raised from substantial to severe because there are terrible things going on in Iraq and Syria. So we're in a world because where there is so much brokenness and unhappiness and disease and death because of sin. And when Jesus comes down from the mountain, there's a large crowd there to meet with him. And he is immediately confronted with the brokenness of the world. We're told that the, the nine disciples who had been left behind had already met with this man and his boy and they had been unsuccessful in delivering uh, the, him from the demon there's various elements to the, the brokenness and the sadness that Jesus confronts uh, first of all there is the, the, the mental state of the father himself this father is beside himself with concern for his son he is desperate uh, he's in no mood to, to come politely and make a, a quiet request to Jesus to help him he cries out and he's imploring Jesus, I beg you, I beg you to come and look at my son. Now, he's not just had a bad night. He's not been kept up at night because his son was particularly unwell. He's not being grumpy. He has lived a life on the edge for years. He's had years of seeing his son afflicted in this way. And he's seeing him being destroyed by this affliction. And what's more, what makes it more poignant is that he is his only child. This is his only child, his only son. This is the son who, who made him sing for joy when the midwife cried out, It's a boy! Who gave him such happiness when he was able to, to help him take his first steps. When he took him to school. When he saw him grow up and develop in every way. And he had friends and enjoyed life. And then this terrible affliction beset him. And the father's been living in this ongoing state of anxiety for years now. And friends, there are people all around us uh, who live lives of quiet desperation because they have situations in their life which show no sign of changing. Maybe uh, their focus is on a health issue. 
Or maybe they have concern about someone in the family, maybe a wayward son or daughter. Maybe it's simply uh, a member of the family who has a, a, a health condition for which there's not much uh, hope. To be at your wit's end, to feel powerless, to have no hope, is to be in a terrible situation. And then there's the affliction of the son himself. Uh, it's important for us to keep to the, the forefront the fact that this is a spiritual problem that the son has. Uh, he is being afflicted by an evil spirit. It's specifically attributed to that. And we must acknowledge the reality of Satan's power. Personified evil is a reality. Uh, we can make the mistake of focusing uh, over much on Satan and demons, demons and evil spirits, but the, the reverse mistake is to dismiss it all as superstitious or as something which, well, probably doesn't really happen. And that would be to play into the evil one's hands. Satan's work is to pull people away from God, the God that he believes in, the God that he fears, and to destroy God's creatures. And this poor young man has been an example of that destructive power for too long. Many of the, the woes that uh, we have in the world can be restrained, they can be rechanneled, but until we face up to the fact that we are spiritual beings, we are not simply flesh and bone. There is a spiritual dimension to our lives and we have spiritual problems that need to be addressed. Until we face up to that, then we never really experience wholeness. So there was the affliction of the sun, but also down there in the valley, the valley of grime, there is an atmosphere of unbelief, of faithlessness that Jesus encounters. And he declares in pain, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? Now there's an echo here from the Old Testament and it's from the time of Moses. It's of the time when Moses had been up on the mountain and the people had been uh, impatient. Would he ever come down? They had turned aside and they had made for themselves a golden calf. And this uh, was what they worshipped. They had fallen away so quickly. Here it seems to be largely the disciples' unbelief that upsets the Lord Jesus. If you go back to the, the beginning of chapter 9, uh, when Jesus sends out the twelve, we're reminded in verse 1 that he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. So they had the authority and they had the power, but they lacked the faith to do it. But I'm sure also that there was faithlessness in the crowd itself. There would be many of those who were in the crowd who were simply uh, holding Jesus at arm's length, who were uncommitted, unconvinced, but they had come to see, well, what would the disciples make of this? What are they going to do with this, this young boy who's been uh, so resistant to help over the years? And this lack of faith grieved the Lord Jesus. Down into the valley of ground. And then Jesus reveals his glory. 
Jesus calls on the man to bring his son to him. Uh, even whilst the father is in the process of doing that, the, the demon is uh, resisting. Uh, he throws the boy down in one last convulsion. But Jesus rebukes the evil spirit. And here's the first shaft of light in the darkness. Uh, evil is withstood by the Son of God. We're not told what the Lord Jesus said, but it was a, a rebuff to an alien power that had no right to hurt and damage on the territory of the Son of God. It's a personal encounter, and there will be only one victor, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's power over evil spirits, and then we see power over sickness. Jesus brings physical healing to the boy, and Luke mentions this separately from the, the rebuke to the evil spirit. The body's the boy's body will no longer, from this point on, no longer be convulsed and contorted. He will no longer be cast down. His life force will no longer ebb away. He's been given physical healing. And then, thirdly, and in a beautiful way, we see the, the, the brokenness that there was in the family bond being restored. Uh, Jesus gave the boy back to his father that's a wonderful wonderful picture isn't it the, the direction of travel restored to the father who felt that he had lost his son the healing of a family bond that evil had broken and Jesus is showing his majesty it's really interesting folks at this point to compare what's going on here with what Peter says in Second Peter about his experience when he was on the mountain. We referred to that last time. Peter speaks of being an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty on that mountain. And what's so interesting is that, that the word that Peter uses in verse 43, sorry, in, in, in his letter, uh, in Second Peter, is the same word that we have in verse 43 of Luke chapter 49, where uh, we have it translated in the NIV as greatness. But actually, it could be translated and perhaps should be translated as majesty. Majesty. Peter saw majesty on the mountain when Jesus' glory was revealed. And here, the crowd are seeing again the majesty of Jesus. On the mountaintop, the majesty of Jesus, uh, as it is in heaven, was revealed to his disciples. A majesty that is veiled by his humanity and by his humiliation in this world. But they saw a glimpse of it on the mountain. And in the res restoration of this boy to wholeness, and the restoration of the family unit again. The people who beheld it, they saw the majesty of Jesus again. What was glimpsed on the mountain is now being glimpsed in the valley. A son brought to wholeness. A father who's reached the end of his line. He's sitting down beside his son. And there's tears of joy running down his face. And the son himself, whose face had once had angst written all over it, 
is now the picture of peace, his head leaning in contentment on his father's shoulder. And there are embraces all around, and there is a shiver of awe and wonder going round the crowd who've seen this, because they've seen something of the glory of Jesus. They've beheld his majesty in this wonderful act. Something of the majesty that belongs to heaven has come down to earth. Heaven has invaded their world. And they're amazed. You might have heard of, of the, the Christian writer C.S. Lewis and his testimony, the book in which he tells his story, is called Surprised by Joy. Now C.S. Lewis uses that word joy in a very special way. Uh, for for C.S. Lewis, there was something that he, ex- that he would experience before he became a Christian, which uh, was more than happiness or pleasure. Uh, it was something which triggered, was triggered off by scenes of beauty and delight or compassion. And this, this sensation that he called joy created in him, he said, a longing for something that he didn't have yet, a desire for a place that he hadn't arrived at yet. He said it was a kind of homesickness for a home that he had never been in. And later on, when he became a Christian, he realized that that joy was actually heaven. And so the title to his book that records his conversion, he found eventually that these longings, these these glimpses of, of what was glorious in life, they were signposts which were pointing him and that day the crowd were amazed at the majesty of God and for them it was a signpost to heaven and you and I have glimpses as well along our way of the majesty of God in all kinds of different ways uh, it might be in, in a, a kind of Christian or a religious setting you know when, we, when we're praising God and there's a melting sense of the, the closeness of God, and it's as though we're beholding his majesty in the gathered worship of God. Or it may be that we, we see someone whose life has been turned around, uh, someone who perhaps had uh, an introverted personality, someone who is awfully timid and, and looking in on themselves all the time, and they came to Jesus Christ and they became Christians, and suddenly, uh, they're the same people. They haven't become uh, you know, uh, extroverts overnight. But something has opened out in their personality, like a flower opening out before the sun. And it brings joy just to behold what Jesus is doing in people. Or it may not be a religious context at all. Simply something which we experience and causes our minds to be raised up and causes us to think there must be something more. There must be something more. And it's because his majesty is being revealed. Notice how the episode ends. It ends with this call to faith. Verse 43 tells us that everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did. The second part of verse 43. They're all marveling at what Jesus has done. They 
are ooing and aahing at this amazing uh, miracle. Uh, they're chatting amongst themselves in the crowd. They're verbally rewinding what's being done. And Jesus speaks specifically to his disciples and he says to them, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Uh, interesting, the literal wording is, uh, lay these words in your ears. We might say, read my lips. Jesus is about to say something very important. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. <coughs> the challenge to people then and today is to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the, the central thrust of this message, to have faith in Jesus. We are living in a world that is an imperfect world. Uh, it's broken by sin. And only Jesus can bring wholeness. And so what the word is saying to us today is, bring your brokenness to Jesus. Bring your concerns, your hurts, your failures to Jesus. If you're worried about young people, if you have a young person in the family, and you're worried about the, that, that person, then bring that young person to the Lord Jesus. Follow the pattern of the Father. Pray for your children. Introduce them to Jesus through his word. From their earliest days, encourage them to trust in Jesus. And if they go astray later in life, keep on loving them. Keep on being committed to them. Keep on believing for them. Keep on praying for them. And if your life is hard, and if there are problems in your life, bring these problems to Jesus because he is the man who calms the sea. He's the man who makes the broken whole. Bring your problems to Jesus. But remember this, that Jesus is so much more than one who can deal with our problems. He is above all else the saviour of the world. His great work is to make you and to make me right with God. And the way that he would do that is by going to a terrible judgment. He will be handed over into the hands of men. And he will do that deliberately and purposefully because he will bear on his precious body the sins of his people to make us right with God. And you know, Jesus is concerned at this point that his disciples haven't yet got it. They haven't understood the kind of saviour he's come to be. He's saying in effect to them, some of you have seen my glory on the mountain. And along with the crowd, you've seen the glory again in this healing, but you must have faith. And your faith must be in the right kind of saviour. Your faith must be in the Saviour who will be betrayed into the hands of men, who will die and, ra and be raised again on the third day. And in this way, Jesus is calling on you and on me to know that our trust is in the cross of Calvary, in Jesus crucified, now risen and glorious once more in heaven. And that majesty of Jesus is still shining into the grime of our world. And it creates 
in the lives of many a longing for something that they have not yet experienced. And he calls on us this morning to look to him, the Savior, crucified for poor, helpless, broken sinners like you and me, to come to him and to believe in him because he is powerful to save us, to make us whole, and to bring us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your Son. Thank you, Father, for his glory. We beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you for shining glory in our lives and giving us a longing for a place that we've not yet been to. But above all, thank you for giving us a Savior who can take us there. Bless your word to us, we pray. In Jesus' name.